And now hear God's word from Revelation chapter 13, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon, who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? As far as the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we ask you to grant us your Holy Spirit, fill us with your spirit as we work to understand these things today. Open up and reveal and unveil these things before our eyes as we open up your scriptures and and submit ourselves to your word and teach us not only about how you've preserved your people in past days, but how you intend to preserve us today and give us confidence and faith and trust and patience in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, I know many of you are animal lovers, but you tend to keep two different kinds of animals. You have animals who don't pay any rent, and you have animals who do. So you have some animals that may, they may pay their rent in affection and in delight in caring for them and, and love uh, that they give back to you and love that you give them. And, and then some of you have working animals, goats and chickens and cows, who pay their rent in different ways. Uh, have you ever considered, though, the vital relationship that God has established between man and beast, both the working kind and the non-working kind? God has set up the world in such a way that animals are integral to human life. Both man and land creatures were created together on the sixth day of creation, and God established the animal kingdom as a sphere over which man would have dominion. God said on that day of creation, he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gives man rule over his six-day creation companions, and then through animals and with animals, man takes dominion over the rest of creation. God didn't tell Adam, rule over the dirt or rule over the water, or rule over the, the, the plants. We assume that those are built into the dominion mandate, but he rules over them with and through the beasts. God pre- provided animals to us to be helpers in, in various ways. Uh, he gave us animals to pull our wagons and pull our plows, to give us eggs and milk and meat, to help us hunt, to kill mice, to clean up vermin, uh, what, what would we do without buzzards? What would we do without um, the, uh, the scavengers? What, what would our, our world be like without them? They're very, very valuable. It gave us animals to give us clothing and to provide warmth and companionship. And God uses animals to teach man. This began all the way back in the garden. Adam had a whole parade of animal helpers for him to name and describe, an entire zoo of companions and co-workers, but 
None of them was suitable for him. None of them was fitted for him as, as someone who, who could reign over creation by his side. Adam needed a better helper. God could have created Eve instantly at the same time that he created Adam. He could have created her first, but he didn't. And anytime God uh, does something, of course, he has a design. He has a plan. He sees this as a teaching opportunity for Adam and for us, that man must learn from animal life. So as Adam sees this parade of animals that uh, he is to name and to understand, he sees a Mr. Bear and a Mrs. Bear. He sees a Mr. Anteater and a Mrs. Anteater. He sees a Mr. Yellow-Bellied Sapsucker, and he sees a Mrs. Yellow-Bellied Sapsucker, but he doesn't see a Mrs. Adam. There is no Mrs. Adam, and Adam's first lesson comes from the animal world. From this, he finds out that it's not good for him to be alone. He needs human helpers, specifically a wife who is going to be made out of his side. Uh, God put Adam into a death sleep and creates the bride in a fashion unlike he's ever made anything else. So he makes man in a very unique way, making him out of the dust of the ground and breathing the breath of life into him. Nothing else has God created in that same way. And then when he makes the bride, he makes her in a very unique way as well. He takes her out of his side. Just as later, there is going to be a man who will die. And out of his side, there'll be blood and water uh, that pour forth, that, and his, his bride will be created out of his side, out of his blood, and out of, out of water. And God does everything for instruction. He does everything with a purpose, and everything has a design. And it all begins with God creating man and beast together on the sixth day, and God uses animals to teach man. There was to be, from the garden forward, increasing cooperation between man and beast. At creation, when God creates on the sixth day, he identifies certain beasts as cattle, not just cows, but all domestic tame animals. So right out of the box, God creates animals that are docile, that are easy to keep, that are easy to tend to, that are easy to care for. They are cattle. And then there's a different category. He uses a different word for wild animals, for living things, for creeping things. The, the word in the Hebrew for cattle is behema, and several scholars have pointed out the word for throne in Hebrew is just one letter different. Bema is the word for throne. Now, Hebrew can be very punny, and it is on purpose, and there's a sense that cattle are a throne, domestic beasts are a throne for human life. Humanity is enthroned on cattle, just as Israel's kings were enthroned on donkeys. Jesus, everybody knows he's the king when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, enthroned on a donkey. And, and there's also a sense in which all human civilization rests upon and depends upon, and human life is enthroned upon the products and the works of animals. God uses animals to catechize. He establishes distinctions between clean animals and unclean animals. Why does he do that? Well, he's teaching lessons at every step of the way. He's saying, these are like the people of the covenant. Watch their behavior. Look at what they do. These are like the Gentile nations yet to be saved. They are going to be made clean eventually, but they're not yet. And he's making distinctions and divisions in the animal kingdom so that we learn about people. 
Part of Adam's commission then was to bring the wild animals into submission, to turn the living things and the creeping things into behemoth. He was supposed to turn them into cattle, to tame them, domesticate them, and make them work for man. So when we get to Isaiah and he sees that uh, eschatological vision, that eschatological kingdom where the lion lays down with the calf and the ox and the bear graze together and the child doesn't have to fear the cobra, um, that's not a picture of how things used to work in Eden. Isaiah's not looking backward because Eden didn't work like that. There were wild animals and there were cattle in Eden in the garden. But that's how things are supposed to look at the end. That's Isaiah's looking forward to the end. That's the eschatological kingdom. If man is faithful to obey God in, the, in his dominion over creation, then the lion and the ox and the bear and the calf, they'll all, they'll all graze together. They'll all, they'll all be together. Um, and then, and then we, won't, we won't have this enmity. But something has seriously disrailed, uh, I'm sorry, derailed that plan. Satan as a serpent, Satan in the form of a beast, instigates an overthrow of man's dominion in, in the garden. And the animal kingdom rises up against man. Man's relationship to the animal kingdom is disrupted. It's severed and it's made complicated. Now even the cattle are made dangerous. When we get over to the book of Exodus, we read what happens if an ox, a dust, an ox, well, ox aren't generally, they, they're cattle. But if an ox gores a man, in that event, a clean animal becomes an unclean animal. If an ox gores a man, you can't eat him. You can't eat his meat. He has to be destroyed. He has to have his head crushed. And we read these laws throughout God's covenant of, of, about animals and our use of animals, but we always remember that as we're being catechized using the animal kingdom, we're always reading about people. Several times throughout God's law, we read, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now, that just sounds cruel and, and devious on the surface. And, and there is a cruelty in that, but it also, there's a reason you don't do that and you don't treat people that way. What does it mean to boil kids in their mother's milk? Well, it means to take something that's used for life um, that's intended for life and use it for death and destruction. Uh, but, but all of God's laws regarding animals have instruction on humanity baked into them. And so we meditate on not only what does this mean for animals, but what does this mean for man? God says, don't plow with an ox and a donkey together. Nobody would be tempted to do that unless you wanted to plow in a circle. But there is a, a command built in there. There's, a, there's instruction built in there about you don't, you don't yoke uh, uh, people unequally. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about the law that says, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And of course, um, Paul applies that to people. So all of these laws about animals, animals are used to instruct us and to teach us about people. When uh, you bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle, you lay your hands on the head of the animal, transferring your identity to the animal. And now what happens to the animal is happening to you. The animal is washed where well, you're washed, you're cleansed. The animal's cut up and put on the altar where well, you're cut up and you're put on the altar. The animal is consumed uh, on the altar before God where well, you are, you, you, your life rises up as a sacrifice before God. Um, animals are always reflective of people. So when we get over to the book of Daniel, 
the empires of the Gentiles are represented by great and powerful beasts. You have Babylon, which is a lion with eagle features. You have Persia represented by a bear. You have Greece represented by a leopard. And then there's this nightmarish, indescribable beast yet to come in Daniel's prophecy. Because of the fall now, we see empires and kingdoms and nations as beasts. Men are under the tyranny of beasts. They're under the tyranny of, of beastly kingdoms, beastly men. Nebuchadnezzar becomes like a beast before his conversion. But the promise echoes throughout the generations that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Things are going to be set right. The beasts are going to be tamed. When John read Mark's gospel this morning, Jesus comes to Israel after he's been baptized. He is driven out into the wilderness and there he's tempted by Satan. And did you listen? Did you hear that? He was with the wild beasts. Again, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste ink. He doesn't waste paper. Why does, why does Mark remind us that he was with the wild beasts in the wilderness? Well, think about what Jesus is doing. Jesus comes to a land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. This is the gardener coming to visit his garden after the under shepherds have had it uh, for many centuries. The gardener comes back and he sees it's not a garden. It's not a place flowing with milk and honey. It's it's a wilderness. And not only that, he doesn't find a well-ordered ranch with working animals in dutiful submission to man. What does he find? He finds wild beasts. It's a jungle of ravenous predators. So the word beasts, as Mark uses it, is a reference to both human and animal varmints and monsters. There are human beasts and there are animal beasts. Jesus arrives on the scene now to be a second Adam, a better Adam, the good shepherd, the good gardener who crushes the serpent breaks his rule and tames the beasts, tames the beastly empires, as we sang in our psalm this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul wrote that he fought with the beasts at Ephesus. Now, I don't remember that. Did you, re did you remember reading that in the book of Acts where did, did Paul go into an arena and fight the, uh, fight the beasts? No, it doesn't mean that he was thrown in the arena with lions. Remember what happened when Paul was in Ephesus, he fought with an angry mob. He was attacked by a riotous mob. The mob was bestial. The mob was acting like beasts, imitating the beast. And, and Paul is another faithful shepherd under Jesus out there to tame the beasts. All of this background is necessary and everything here is important as we come to this next sign that John sees in the book of Revelation as the story of creation as the story of the victory of King Jesus plays out through visions before John, there are a number of animals over the next couple of chapters, and we always want to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so today we're going to see all this enmity between man and beast that has been instigated by the serpent. It wasn't supposed to be this way, but it's been instigated by the serpent. This enmity between man and beast is behind the things that we're studying now. Let's remember where we are in Revelation. We have just read the first part of John's heavenly vision. Uh, we are reading now how the kingdoms become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he sees a woman clothed with celestial glory about to give birth. There's a dragon coiled to devour her child. A son is born from the woman, and then he is enthroned in heaven. And from there, the son fights against the dragon and casts him down to the land. The son ascends. The saints ascend. The dragon only descends from here. He's going to go further and further down. If you track the dragon's progress from here on, it's down, 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 down. He doesn't get to ascend anymore. 
And so the last time we saw the dragon, he's now, he's now holed up in the land. And in the vision of the star that fell from heaven, wormwood uh, that, that poisoned the waters at the temple, he's now holed up in the temple. The synagogues are now synagogues of Satan. The temple doesn't preach truth. The temple preaches only lies. And here the dragon is, 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 is waiting. And now it's from the land that the dragon calls forth his own son, a beast, and gives him power to terrorize the land. Let's read the first couple of verses again. Then I saw, I'm sorry, then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and 10 horns and on his horns, 10 crowns and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now the beast, which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. John watches this vision from the sand of the sea. Now, where is he? If he's standing on the sand of the sea, what was God's promise to Abraham? God's promise to Abraham was that his offspring would be as the sand of the sea, uh, as innumerable like the sand of the sea. So John is standing on the people. He's standing on the land of promise. He's standing on Israel. And what is about to happen, he sees from Israel's perspective. So if he's standing on the seashore and he's in Israel, it must mean he's facing west when he sees a beast rising up out of the sea. So we already know from Daniel that these prophetic beasts are empires. Then from where Israel stands on the land, this is a Gentile empire that rises from the west across the great sea. In the previous vision that we saw, the dragon had seven heads and 10 horns. So now this beast that the dragon summons from the sea also has seven heads and 10 horns. The beast is an imitation of the dragon. He looks just like his daddy. Look at him, he's so cute. All those 10 horns and all those heads, he, he's got his daddy's horns. You look at him, he's so, he's so adorable. Oh, well, he's not adorable, he's horrible. He's awful, he's nightmarish. This beast looks similar to the dragon and on his seven heads he has the seven names that we looked at last week. We looked at the seven names of, 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 of our enemy in the book of Revelation. Wormwood, Apollyon, Abaddon, dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. The foreheads of the heads of the beast are sealed with the name of our enemy, named the names of the dragon. Like the priest wore on his head, the, the high priest wore a diadem that said, holy to the Lord. He had Yahweh's name on his forehead. Earlier we read the 144,000 are sealed with the name of the Lord on their foreheads. Having something written on your forehead is going to come up next week when we look at the land beast. So remember this and hold on to it. But this, this beast is sealed with the names of the dragon on his foreheads. The beast that comes out of the sea is like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. I keep referring back to Daniel's prophecy and this is where it's, uh, uh, John is tracking right with Daniel Daniel had visions of the empires of the earth that followed each other. He saw a lion, a bear, and a leopard, and then he saw a fourth indescribable beast. So he saw Babylon and Persia and Greece, and then something followed Greece that was indescribable. Well, this has to be the beast that John sees here, an empire that contains elements of all of the others, but it's something that's larger and more terrifying and more powerful than all three. Well, who is this beastly empire that rises 
from the West. Remember, these are things which are to take place shortly from John's perspective. This is not uh, Russia. This is not China. Uh, this is not Iran or Iraq. This, uh, John and, and the book of Revelation says repeatedly, these things must shortly take place. These things must shortly take place. Well, who was the kingdom that was to come against the land very shortly? The empire, it must be, it must be Rome. That's the obvious answer. But in the last vision, remember that the Roman eagle was a protector for the woman. The Roman eagle delivered her from the dragon. And I said last week that the Roman legal system was a refuge for the church early on. When the church was persecuted by the synagogues, she could appeal to the Roman authorities. Now the protector eagle is this great seven-headed beast coming out of the sea. What has happened? Well, as you know history, you know well, between AD 33 and AD 70, the, the Roman Empire's attitude toward the church changed drastically. So this is not just a nice eagle that is turned into a monster eagle. The beast here is not just the political entity of Rome that has shifted, but now what's coming out of the sea about to hit the land is this entire multi-headed beast of the Roman Empire's ethos and religion and power and influence and values, everything from Caesar to the Senate, to the army, to the pagan worship system, all of these heads, everything, every part of it is now discipled by Satan and is now turned into this great freakish monstrosity. The dragon gives this beast his power, his throne, and great authority. What does that sound like to you? Who, who gets power and a throne and great authority? This is Satan trying to raise up his own son. This is Satan trying to raise up his own Messiah. The dragon can't create. He can only imitate. And here he parodies the relationship between the father in heaven and his son, Jesus. The sea beast is the express image of the dragon. Dragon of dragon, darkness of darkness, very dragon of very dragon, if he had a, had a creed. And, and in the next beast that we see, we'll read about another beast next week at the end of chapter 13. There's a land beast who proceeds from the dragon and the sea beast who gives life with his breath. It's a false spirit. So now you have a false spirit, a mockery of the son, and a mockery of the father. We have this whole monstrous trinity here in this chapter. There's even a mock death and resurrection. Though it comes by a head wound, so we don't forget where we are and we don't forget who this is. Verse 3, uh, and I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So there's a death and a resurrection. One of the heads is killed and one of the heads pops back to life. Well, what is this? If this beast is Rome, what kind of mortal wound and what kind of miraculous resurrection might this be referring to? Many commentators refer to things that happened between uh, AD 60 and 70 AD. There was the great fire of Rome that happened under Nero's uh, leadership in AD 64, the great fire that lasted six days, and something like two-thirds of the buildings in the city of Rome were destroyed. But the city uh, recovered really quickly and carried on. That could have been a death and resurrection that this refers to. Some suggest that it might have been Nero's death himself. When Nero died, it was the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, that first line of 
emperors that had lasted from the beginning of the empire, from the very formation of the empire, that dynasty died with Nero. And the death of Nero sparked great turmoil in Rome. There was a civil war. There was the year of four emperors in AD 69, four emperors ruling right in a row, one right after the other. And then until uh, then Vespasian brings order. He's an outsider. Vespasian is a military man. He's not part of any dynasty. And he brings order to Rome and he puts down the rebellion in Jerusalem. He destroys the city of Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and he reestablishes Roman power and authority. There's a death and resurrection uh, from the, from the uh, perspective of the, of the end of a line of Caesars, turmoil, and then a resurrection with a, with a new Caesar. Some scholars point even further back in history to the death and resurrection of Rome after the assassination of Julius. Brutus, Cassius, and the other conspirators attempted to save the Republic of Rome by putting Caesar to death and hoping to put to death the whole system of Caesarism. But what followed was a dictatorial authority beyond anything Julius achieved. So it looks like Caesar's dead. It looks like Caesarism is dead, but then he comes back even stronger than before. So there are a few events where the Roman Empire nearly ended. It died. It looked like it was gone, but then it rose again. So whichever one makes the most sense, this vision refers to a crisis in Roman history which nearly destroys the empire, but from which the empire recovers even more strongly than before. It's this perceived resilience. It's this bouncing back, this false resurrection power that wows all of the people. And they become even more enamored with the beast. They worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast himself saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? My daddy's bigger than your daddy. You can't lick him. He's going to beat you. Who is like him? They ask. Last week we read about Michael, the archangel, whose name means who is like God. This is their false Michael. They're saying who is like him. So the people engaged in this joyous activity, this fervor, they might just say, you know, I'm just really happy to be a Roman. They might call this national fervor or pride in your empire or Roman loyalty. But the book of Revelation is an unveiling. And, and, and so the spirit says, no, this, this isn't just patriotism. This is worship. This beastly nationalism is a religion and it has a false messiah, it has a false liturgy. It has a calendar of holy days. You pay your tithes when you pay your taxes. You have your saints and your sinners. You have your, your holy ones and your, uh, your reprobates. You have your hymns and your prayers, and you give your allegiance to the beast. And in so doing, you worship the dragon. The beast desires not just your obedience, but your devotion. He doesn't just want your time or your money. He wants your heart. He wants your worship. And that's the way it is with all beastly, untamed empires. And Rome did this so smoothly and so skillfully. They mixed religion with politics in the cult of Caesar worship. And this, this played a significant role in keeping unity throughout the empire. When they conquered another civilization, it didn't matter what gods you had in, in your temples. It really didn't matter to them. You like your gods, you keep your gods. It doesn't matter. But you had to worship Caesar as well. You had to add Caesar into your pantheon of gods. And if you do that, if you worship Caesar, then you won't have any trouble. In their system, Caesar was the son of God. And when Caesar died, he ascended to the heavenlies. 
So this act of ascribing authority to the beast, this act of worshiping the beast is not simply honor due to rulers. It's not simply honor due to authorities. This is giving to Caesar the allegiance that belongs to Jesus. And Israel's hands were not clean in this at all. Israel participated in this when they stand at the trial of Jesus and they shout, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. Kill Jesus, Caesar is our God. That's precisely what the people of the land do. They worship Caesar, they worship the beast, and through the beast, they worship the dragon. And so what Revelation shows us is this is not just bad politics. This is not misplaced national loyalty. This is not overzealous patriotism. This is false worship. State worship is pagan liturgy. It is idolatrous. And it's idolatrous because the state is not a capable Messiah. The state cannot save you. It cannot even do a good job of nourishing you or making you comfortable or educating you. The duty of the state is to protect the innocent and to restrain evil by punishing evildoers. God gave the state the sword to do that. That's the tool he gave them, but that's the only tool that he gives them. So when the state tries to do anything else, it fumbles. It tries to teach with the sword. It tries to medicate with the sword. It tries to feed with the sword. And either you get on board with the state or we'll lock you in a cage or we'll take your head off. But, but people are in awe of its power. They are in awe of the power of the sword. They crave the power and the protection of the state because they know no higher king. And their worship emboldens the beast to persecute the saints. Verse five, and he, the beast, was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. The beast attacks the church in two ways. First, with arrogant words and blasphemies. He opens his mouth against God and against his name, John says. Well, his name is Jesus. Jesus has the name which is above every name. Jesus is the name by which we are all saved. Under the old covenant, his name was Yahweh. But the name by which we are saved today is Jesus. So he blasphemes God and he blasphemes his name. He blasphemes the name of Jesus. The beast hates Jesus. The beastly kingdom, the beastly empire hates Jesus. He hates that you love Jesus. So his strategy is to defame and shame the name of Jesus so that his people feel embarrassed for loving and for following Jesus. He wants the followers of Jesus to feel really stupid for worshiping Jesus and listening to his words. So he's always on the attack with blasphemy. And this is in plain view today. It's very easy to make applications. Uh, this beastly empire that we live with isn't happy until you join him in his beastly behavior. You have to say the thing. You have to say the slogan. You have to, you have to recite the lie. You must participate in the lie. You can't refrain. You can't just keep your tongue. You can't hold your silence because silence is violence, remember. We used to fight for the freedom of speech. And one day soon, we're going to have to fight for the freedom to not say anything. We're going to have to fight for the freedom of silence. This is how the beast is trained to act by the dragon. You can't just keep silent. You have to participate verbally. You have to join in the blasphemy. You have to repeat the lie just so we know where you stand. 
And so the beast has no humility and he has no reverence for anything. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is off limits. The beast never looks at something and says to himself, well, maybe I shouldn't go there. Maybe that's over the line. That would be taking things too far. No, nothing is too pure or foundational or integral to human life that it cannot be corrupted, uprooted, turned inside out, perverted, shamed, and destroyed. Everything gets defiled by the mouth of the beast and his blasphemy. Remember in chapter 12, the dragon flooded the bride with lies, those the deluge of lies that that cause you to doubt your own sanity. Am I the crazy person? Everybody's drinking up the lies. Remember, the people of the land drank up the lies. Well, the beast follows his father with verbal attack, with a flood of slander, innuendo, libel, meme warfare, uh, propaganda, demonic catechesis. And God is blasphemed, his name is blasphemed, his church is blasphemed, as well as those who dwell in heaven, John says. One more reference to chapter 12. Remember, in, jo in Revelation 12, we had a reference to the heavens and those who dwell in them. I remember I asked, who is that? Who dwells in the heavens? That's you. That's the saints. You dwell in the heavens. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. His ascension is your ascension. You have been raised up and seated with him in the heavenlies, Paul says in Ephesians. So Jesus is attacked and his church is attacked and slandered as well. And that's the first initiative of the beast. Slander, lies, blasphemy. The second way that the beast attacks is through direct violence. He's allowed to make war with the saints and overcome them. But he's only given authority to do this, John says, for 42 months. Well, we keep seeing this period of time, three and a half years, 1,260 days, a time, times, and half a time. This comes up over and over. This is the three and a half years of trampling the holy city, the three and a half years that the witnesses do their job. Time is limited. The beast's unleashing does not go on forever. It has a defined start and a defined stop time. Nero's persecution of the church before he died was three and a half years long. The final siege and destruction of Jerusalem was three and a half years. So this prophetic picture that John gives us, and from John's perspective, the thing which is shortly to take place is that the Roman Empire is going to be summoned to come make war on the land. And not only on the land, but on the city and the temple and the church at the same time. And that's precisely what happened not too long after John finished writing Revelation. But he ends with this encouragement, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. The ones who can see through the lies and who can resist the worship of the beast are the ones whose names have been written in the book of life. They have a higher allegiance. They're, they're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Those with ears to hear resist the worship of the beast. They don't engage in the cult of Caesar. They don't buy into the bravado and the hubris of Rome. Their worship of God contrasts the bestial uh, behavior of the beast, and they heed the warning here. If you participate in the works of the beast, you will end up in captivity. You will end up under the sword. Don't fight like the beast. Don't think like the beast. Don't use his tactics. This is the patience and faith 
of the saints. He fights out of panic. He fights out of the terror that he knows his time is limited. He knows he is losing. You don't fight with panic. You don't live under fear and panic and anxiety. You have faith and patience. Well, this beast was clearly Rome. It wasn't just Caesar. It wasn't every Roman citizen. It was the Roman world power, the collective energy and culture of Rome, which pridefully positioned itself against the worship of God. And there are similarities between this beast and the beasts of the other empires in Daniel and every empire in the world that has risen since. Untamed empires, empires not submitted to the good shepherd are wild beasts. We are presently living under the reign of just such a wild beast. Now this beast isn't our neighbors, the beast isn't our countrymen, the beast is the entire power structure, the bureaucracy, the administration that is set up in rebellion toward God. The, the, the structure that deliberately, openly disregards God's law, openly defies the kingdom of Christ and sets itself up as a rival. Now sure, the beast is made up of people, but the beast is bigger than any one person. The beast is the machine that presses people into its service. So John gives us this perspective. The empires are beasts that are to be tamed. Like cattle, they are meant to serve mankind. They're supposed to be behema. They're supposed to be docile beasts. And I pray for, and I hope, and I want, and I want to use all my influence that we might live with such a peaceful beast, a tame beast. I want a protector beast, like Rome started out to be, as that eagle that protected the woman in the wilderness. But presently, this beast is bucking and kicking and showing out. It doesn't want the bit. It doesn't want the bridle. It doesn't want anything to do with the saddle. Okay, well, there's two things that can happen from here. Either it becomes more beastly and it gets crushed, or it gets broken and tamed. And remember, that's what eventually happens with Rome. Rome starts off as a protector. It turns into a seven-headed beast. But by the time of Constantine, it's tamed again. And it becomes a protector and it becomes a helper beast. And my prayer is for this, for this beast that we live with. But either way, God's will be done. So these things are written for our learning so that we pay attention. We are not called or required to muster an armed rebellion against the beast. We are required to have patience and faith. That's what's called for. Here is the patience and faith of the saints because our warfare is spiritual. Our weapons are spiritual, which is not another way of saying that they're not real, by the way. When I say something is spiritual, I don't mean that it's not real and I don't mean that it's effective. It is very real. Our weapons are very, very powerful, but we don't fight the way that the beast or the dragon or their offspring fight. Our resistance against this beast begins with simply not participating in the worship of the beast. Withdraw your heart, untangle your emotions from the adoration of the beast and of his ways and of the way that he attains power. Stop caring about all the things the beast wants you to care about. Stop being outraged by all the things that the beast wants you to be outraged about. Just do that. And that's enough to get you called an extremist, a dangerous fanatic, just because you back off. You, you don't have to do anything, just not do some things, and you'll get called all the right names uh, by all the right people. And that's a great privilege and a great honor to, to have that. Then by your work and your life and your testimony and by your worship, publicly declare in every way that your highest allegiance is to the Lord Jesus. And know that when you take up the name of the Lord Jesus, the Lord 
personally takes the slander and the violence which the, which the beast hurls against you, he takes it all personally. And here's the best part. He's not a passive Adam. He's not an Adam that lets the serpent run wild in the garden. He's not a bad shepherd. Jesus puts himself between the beast and the bride. And he does it in such a way that the beast only has two options. Either calm down and be a good beast, a tame beast who helps my bride, who protects my bride, or you're going to get your head crushed. There's no third neutral option. All kingdoms must either submit to Jesus, let him put a saddle on you and ride you, or be crushed and be replaced by something else. That's Jesus's work. Your job is patience and faith, hope and trust and wait on Jesus and his work. That's what our calling is to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for opening up these things to our eyes this morning and showing them to us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask you to continue uh, to uh, marinate our hearts in these things, to uh, continue to meditate on them so that we might please you with our words and by our actions and to exalt the name of Jesus above all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.